Hi, I'm Melanie Tate and this is Now Hear This. For many of us, our greatest stories involve our families. They can be funny, they can be heartbreaking, but every single one of us has a story about something wonderful or something terrible our family has done to us or something we've done to our family. Today, three stories taking us all over the world and all over Australia to three very different family situations. The first story was told at Sydney Writers' Festival earlier this year by author Dawn Barker. About a year ago now, I was walking along the banks of the Swan River at the University of Western Australia in Perth, where I live with my husband and three kids. My children looked over at a group of African students who were having a picnic on on the banks of the river, and my then two-year-old clutched my leg, and she said to me something I'll never forget. She said, Mummy, I'm frightened of those men. I was really shocked because she's never heard a racist comment in my house, not ever. But what I realised is that my kids live in a very white, middle-class suburb of Perth, and they just haven't seen the rest of the world. So when my husband, a few months later, got the opportunity to move us to South Africa, to Cape Town, to live for a few months, I jumped at the opportunity. I thought this is a way to show my kids that there is a world outside of our very, this very small area that they live in and to teach them that, children, uh, that people come um, in, in every shape, size, tall, short, thin, fat, different colours, that doesn't matter. So we packed up the house, not an easy task with three kids under five. We got a house sitter, a dog sitter and a chicken sitter for our our crazy household and off we went. And it was interesting when I was flying over here from Perth the other day um, for the festival, I thought to myself as, as I was in the back row of the plane next to the toilets in the middle, how blissful it was because I didn't have three children climbing all over me. Um, because on that flight to South Africa, it was a, a, a terrible flight where my two-year-old had one of those tantrums. I was one of those families on the plane that you all were saying, control your child. But eventually we got to Cape Town and um, I didn't know what to expect when we got there. A lot of people had said to us, oh, I can't believe you're taking three children to South Africa. I guess we've all heard the stories of the violence there. Um, But when I arrived in Cape Town, I was thrilled. It was a beautiful, multicultural, cosmopolitan city, and we were having a fabulous time. One morning, I woke up, and I checked my emails as soon as I woke up, and I hope I'm not the only one who reaches from my smartphone first thing. And I noticed I had a few messages from people, um, some of them commiserating me, another, another couple of people saying, you should get out of the country now, because when I'd gone to sleep the night before, Nelson Mandela had died. It was an odd place to be at that time. There was a lot of grief in the city, but there was also a lot of celebration, and there was going to be a celebration concert in Cape Town in one of the stadiums that had been built for the Soccer World Cup. You may have seen the ceremony that they had in Johannesburg, which had the infamous Barack Obama speech with the sign language interpreter um, who wasn't perhaps authentic. Uh, They had a similar one in Cape Town a few days later. Tickets were free, but you had to queue. There were massive queues throughout the city, so I braved it with the three kids, with another two-year-old tantrum, and we got our tickets. I had a couple of spares, so I went into my husband's office and I offered the tickets, first of all, to one man who was a a cape-coloured man. There's a a really interesting racial mix in South Africa, which is why it was a fantastic place to bring the kids. He declined the tickets. Unfortunately, he had a relative who'd had a car accident the day before, had rolled his car off of a cliff, and he had a spinal cord injury. Not only that, but the hospital had run out of morphine. Um, It's just the way it is there, unfortunately. So he was actually driving all over the city trying to find a pharmacy to buy morphine from to then deliver to the hospital. So I guess my eyes were 
opened then to some of the issues behind the beauty of Cape Town. I then offered the tickets to another woman who, who looked a little uncomfortable, and then she said, I'll just go and ask my husband. She came back 10 minutes later after calling her husband and said, thank you very much, thank you for the offer. We won't go because my husband said there will be too many blacks there. And that was when I was lost for words. What I wanted to say was, what? Of course, this is South Africa. It's a Mandela tribute concert. Of course, there will be blacks there because that's the whole point of what Mandela spent his whole life suffering for. But what I really said was, oh, fair enough. And I walked away. And later that night, as we had dinner with a couple that we knew, a Zulu woman and a white German man, I felt horribly guilty. It, I almost felt as if it had been me who had spoken those words because I hadn't said anything and I hadn't spoken up and I felt that I was complicit in that racism by not saying anything. I wondered if it was politeness and then later on I'd spoken about it to our babysitter and she said to me, well you don't understand. She said, you didn't grow up here. It's an interesting thing being, being a foreigner in another country and I do wonder whether people who didn't grow up there should be the people who, who do say something, people who are um, free from those blinkers, I guess, of experience. I didn't say anything at that point, and I, I wondered about what I do in, in Australia. Um, I've been here now for 12 years. I do consider myself both a British citizen and I'm also an Australian citizen. And I think Australians are different when we, we make racist comments. We tend to make them as jokes or we tend to perhaps disguise them a little bit as excuses. But I do feel that I do speak up a little bit more here because I've worked in psychiatry long enough here to know that uh, criminality and all those things that are associated with the, the prejudices of racism are nothing to do with race. They're to do with intergenerational poverty, intergenerational trauma, and intergenerational grief, no, nothing else to do with race. So I do, I mean, we do it here ourselves. We hear comments about Aboriginals, about Muslims, about asylum seekers, and about women. But we went to the concert. We'd been warned by the same woman that we'd probably be robbed, that we shouldn't take our camera or, or our money, but um, we weren't. But funnily enough, we held hands with the people next to us in the stadium and we sang gospel songs. We laughed as Annie Lennox did a rather bizarre monologue rap on the stage. And we all cried when Francois Pinier described his moment when Mandela handed him the Webb Ellis Cup wearing a Springboks jersey in the Rugby World Cup all those years ago. Later on, that a couple of weeks later, sorry, we went to this woman's house for dinner. She invited us over for dinner. And I was a little uneasy about going, but of course we were polite and we, we went and she was a perfectly gracious host. But then she gave me a tour of her house. She showed me the giant dogs in the garden. She showed me the barbed wire fence around the perimeter um, of the house. She showed me the guns that they had and the armed response alarm system and even a panic room, which I didn't no, actually really existed, but she, she showed us this, this fortress that she lived in. And she told us a story about when she was uh, younger, when her children were just toddlers, when she had a violent home invasion and guns had been held to their head. And she thought that she and her children were going to be murdered because sadly during, during apartheid, for all sorts of reasons that we, we can all imagine, there was an awful lot of violence and turmoil. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder if I'd been in that situation too, would I have said something? Would I have, have felt the same way? And would I have agreed with what she said? But then a few weeks later, I'd been in the park with my daughters and they were doing a drawing, as they do. They're, they're all under five, so they were drawing some beautiful pictures. 
And I, I looked at what my four-year-old was drawing, and she drew a picture of all these children in the park, her and her sisters and all the other kids. All the other children in the picture were coloured in brown. She and her sisters were white. Her hair was coloured in brown. She has brown hair. And her sister's hair was coloured in yellow. All the girls had different coloured dresses on and different coloured shoes on. And what I loved about that picture, and I've kept it to this day, is that in the picture there's absolutely nothing remarkable to my kids about the colour of the people's skin in the park. To her and to my kids, the colour of the, the skin of their friends in South Africa was no different to the colour of their dresses or the colour of their hair. So I hope that when my children are older, first of all, I hope they never hear a comment like that. But if they do, I hope that um, they have the courage to find the words that I couldn't find on that day. Thank you. Dawn Barker told that story earlier this year at Sydney Writers' Festival. You are now here this. I hope you're having a terrific Friday night listening to these stories. Our next story is from Ethan Andrews. When I was eight years old, a very beautiful girl called Phoebe moved into the house two doors down from where I still live. <laughs> now, when you grow up with a girl next door, there's a part of you that always hopes that she'll be the girl next door. <laughs> and Phoebe was. I, I can't really explain it, but I just pictured this future where we would end up together. Kind of like as if I was Clark Kent and she was my lowest lane. But... <laughs> This instalment of Superman has a new villain. My cousin Josh? And Josh's superpower is having sex with Lois Lane. That didn't happen right away, though. The first time anything happened between Phoebe and I was a few months after she moved in. She came over one Friday night to be babysat by my parents... We were just sitting around the lounge room watching the footy on TV when my mum remarked how much she'd like a foot massage. So one of my brothers went and got some moisturiser, started giving her a foot rub, and then all I can remember is that there were hands giving lots of body parts rubs. Phoebe was giving me a back rub. Her sister was giving my brother a chest rub. And my parents just kept watching the NRL like some oily preteen sexual exploration wasn't happening in their lounge room. They were cool with the whole thing. Meanwhile, I'm lying there, face down, watching Nigel Vunganar trying to conceal the hugest eight-year-old stiffy. And then nothing happened for 10 years. <laughs> the next time something happened, we were 18 and Phoebe and I ran into each other on a night out. It was a, at a pub in my hometown, this really grotty, dingy pub that was actually heritage listed, somehow. You know, because in my hometown, that urinal overflowing onto the bathroom tiles... And that racist graffiti carved into the pokies? 
That's a part of who we are. <laughs> On this night out, after a decade of flirting and enough liquid courage, Phoebe and I finally kissed, and it was great. This led to what I guess you would call dates, where we'd go out to the movies and then make out in my car, or we'd go to a bar and I'd buy her a Midori Illusion, <laughs> which, which is actually just a regular Midori under, <laughs> under the illusion she was my girlfriend. <laughs> but just as quickly as things started, they ended again. Phoebe would stop writing back to my texts and I didn't know what I meant to her anymore until she cleared it up for me with a Facebook message that said, Hey, Ethan. Happy birthday, bud. I later found out the reason things didn't work out between us was because the whole time we were together, she was infatuated with my cousin. See, about a year before, he had led her on and broke her heart. So then she just did the exact same thing to me. Which meant... I found myself entangled in this weird, pay-it-forward, family tree love triangle <laughs> where the only way I can get revenge, I think, is to make out with my cousin. <laughs> Although he could, in fact, argue I started this whole chain of heartbreak during a very curious and homoerotic game of dress-ups as the Pink Power Ranger in 1999. <laughs> Andrews told that story at the most recent Now Hear This Storytelling Slam in Sydney. The next one is in October and the theme is unexpected. So go to our website for details. It will be the last of the year. So if you want to tell a story, that's the place to do it. Our final story today is from that very same night where eight brave people had their names pulled out of an RN shopping bag to tell their stories. Here's Sonny Mickelson. When I was a little kid, I really wanted to be a musician like my father. I didn't want to be a pop star. I wanted to be a musical prodigy. <laughs> if you've ever seen the trop there, tragically, I had a sister. And if you've ever seen the movie Amadeus, where the great Viennese court composer Solieri burns with jealousy and rage and eventually descends into madness and murder, over the fact that God gifted Wolfgang Mozart with music and not him, then you'll pretty much understand the dynamic between nine-year-old me and my 15-year-old sister. <laughs> when my sister was about four years old, she toddled up to the uh, old upright piano at my parents' place for the first time ever and started picking out a tune with both hands. <laughs> Bass, chord... Melody, note perfect. My mother realised she had something special. She had perfect pitch. And by the time I was about nine years old, my sister was a self-taught guitarist, a singer, a composer, an eighth-grade piano player. And I was her annoying little sister. Hmm. 
thank you. <laughs> and the trouble was, I loved music too, but I couldn't hold a candle to her gift. However, by the time I was nine, I kind of knew that I could sing. It wasn't a particularly strong or all that interesting voice, but I, as far as I could tell, I could carry a tune note perfect, maybe even a little better than my sister. <laughs> so I became a horrible show-off, that awkward girl that's always singing to herself. You know that one? <laughs> my big dream was that my sister would notice that I sang better than her. <laughs> But uh, my sister just sort of went calmly along and didn't notice. <laughs> when I was about nine years old, the uh, social event of the year rolled around, the annual Innisfail State Primary School Fancy Dress Ball. <laughs> this year, the theme was international. We all had to dress up like someone from a different culture, which in those days meant pretty much dressing up as either a Scotsman or an American Indian. <laughs> and we um, had to showcase our talents around the theme. So like a flash, I was down on the bitumen quadrangle or in the 40-degree heat, <laughs> auditioning into the school's PA system, 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 system. <laughs> it was rickety. <laughs> For the next few weeks, I was beside myself. I was going to sing solo at the social event of the year. <laughs> I practiced and practiced and practiced all around the house. When I was doing my chores, like scaring away the cane toads, <laughs> I was like, it's a world of laughter, a world of tears. <laughs> my mum was like, that's very good, darling. But my sister acted like nothing worth being jealous about was happening at all. So, on the night of the ball, uh, almost the entire population of far north Queensland turned up and everybody glittered in their feathers and kilts. <laughs> and my sister was in the audience. <laughs> I remember standing on the rickety makeshift stage just trembling with terror. I held onto the microphone and stared at it while I waited for Mrs. DeFavory's cassette recording of the first four bars of the song <laughs> to take me to the bit where I had to open my mouth. And much to my relief, the right sound came out. The PA system picked it up and it just blasted across the oval. When I finished, there was this horrible moment of silence and then the entire quadrangle just exploded into applause. I couldn't move. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot like tonight, actually. <laughs> I couldn't move. So my teacher actually lifted me off the stage, and I was swept away by a bunch of grade seven girls who I didn't actually know, but that's what happens when you're catapulted to stardom. <laughs> they braided my hair for hours. <laughs> The next morning at the breakfast table with my mother and sister, I ran through the events of the previous night in a level of detail that probably wasn't necessary, but I was excited, and my mum understood. She said she was very proud of me. And then she looked pointedly at my sister and said, don't you have anything you'd like to say? Oh yeah, no, no, it was quite good, said my sister, which wasn't good. <laughs> and in that moment, I saw the whole affair through her 15-year-old eyes, and it was just embarrassing 
this, you know, school event with children wearing macaroni and paper plates, something that parents and siblings had to just kind of grimly endure. She wasn't jealous because there was nothing to be jealous about. But then, as she got up from the table and walked away, she went, it's a small world after all, it's a small world after all. (laughs) And I was happy because even though in that moment it was like, damn, I was pitchy, I also knew like, who does that to a nine-year-old girl unless, oh yeah, I got her. Sonny Mickelson told that story at Now Hear This in Sydney last month. All the information you need on Now Hear This you'll find on our website, abc.net.au slash rn or via our Twitter at NHT Stories. Today's stories were recorded by Andre Shabanov and Joe Wallace with technical production by Judy Rapley. I'm Melanie Tate. I'll be with you tomorrow for Weekend Arts from 2 o'clock here on RN, but do enjoy what's left of your Friday night and I hope you get a story or two out of it. (laughs) 